All right. Parashat Ki Tetzeh. I'll tell you a difficult, a difficult story. Um, contrary to popular belief, the most difficult part of the army experience is not in the regular army. When you go into the regular army, you're 18 years old. Okay, thank you. Um, is that better? Okay, good job. Uh, when you go into the regular army, like, you know, you're 18 years old, it's a big adventure. I'm not saying it's easy, it's very hard. It'll be the hardest thing if anybody does it that you've ever done. But it's an experience, you know, you're with other guys more or less your age. What I found much more difficult was the reserves. You finish the army, you're married, you have kids, you have a job, and you just gotta turn a switch for three, four weeks out of the blue. Sometimes you have a month to prepare for it. Sometimes it just comes out of the blue because there's an emergency situation, at least for me, and uh, especially as an officer. And that's a very difficult experience because you kind of have to do this mind switch. You have to get back into, you know, yesterday you were... Oh, did I mention, by the way, that there's serious chillant waiting later? Uh, we'll talk about that too. It's coming soon, right? So, um, so, 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 so yesterday you're like eating chillant, learning Torah. And the next day you're in green pajamas running up and down hills, busting down doors, whatever it is that you happen to be doing. I used to find that very difficult, just making that mental switch. And especially once you get married and you have children, you have a lot more to lose. So like, it happened to me, different people have different issues, right? For whatever the reason, Hashem blessed me, that, you know, fear of dying, all that kind of stuff, that just wasn't my issue. For whatever the reason, nothing to do with me. And uh, so it was like a big adventure, more or less, not exactly, but whatever. When I got to Miloim, when I got to reserve duty, all of a sudden you have a wife, you have children. It's really hard for them that not, you're not there. It's hard for them that you're not there. You become much more sensitive. So one year we got Miluim down on the Egyptian border, okay, near a place called Kerem Shalem. And we were doing uh, patrols, uh, you know, up and down near Rafiach, Aza, whatever, but not in Rafiach and Aza. And it actually wasn't that difficult. Um, you know, I, I, I was excited, uh, uh, you know, we weren't like inside a tough zone. We were just doing patrols on the border. At the time, it was a relatively quiet border. Um, you know, there was something called the Mondial. The Mondial is the big uh, world soccer tournament. And I had never been into soccer, but these guys, a lot of my soldiers were seriously into soccer. I was a, whatever, a deputy company, I don't remember, a deputy company commander, I think, or, or a platoon commander still. And, um, and guys even brought their television sets. Like this. Remember, this is the reserves, right? These guys are Mr. Dar. They're all set up. And I remember there were some guard towers along the border, and three guys would be up in the guard tower. And it was my job as an officer to kind of go amongst all the positions and check on the guys, make sure everybody's okay, talk to them, see how they're doing. It's a little bummer. You're away from home. Um, it turned out I was going from the first period soccer game at this Mutsav to the second period at that guard tower, whatever. It was awesome, right? And it was probably illegal, but you know, it was what it was. And we would just watch, keep an eye on the border and watch TV. And uh, there was only one piece of that Miloim that was really just sort of an anomaly. Couldn't figure it out. Right there, along the border, I'm not gonna say exactly where, for reasons that'll become obvious, there was this Arab village. It was like in the middle of nowhere. It was on the Israeli side of the border, about a kilometer or two from the border. And it was part of our patrol route. And I couldn't figure out what it was doing there and why we were doing there. There may be 30, 40 families. And why would you, like, I, I'm, 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 I'm into history. I'm into sort of anthropology. You know, you get to a city, you got to figure out why, why would they build Arizona in the middle of Phoenix in the middle of the desert? There's a reason for it. It has to do with the railroad. It has to do with a body of water. Could not figure this one out. 
what bunch of lunatics decided to create a village in the middle of nowhere? And it took me a while to figure it out. And I figured it out quite by accident. I asked a couple people, and I guys, I don't know, whatever it is, because we were all reserve duty soldiers. We had just landed there. And uh, I wasn't the company commander, because the company commander sort of had gotten a briefing on this, and I guess he didn't feel it was important to share it with everybody. Just, you know, be careful of no suspicious activity around there and fine. So I thought we're watching them. Turned out it was quite the opposite. So one night there was a checkpoint, not far from, uh, you know, sort of where we were doing our patrol. And one night we get this urgent call. There's an Arab guy. He showed up at this checkpoint. He wants to talk to the officer in charge, and he's got a gun. Like, they checked him out, and he had a gun. They took his gun away, they whatever. They wouldn't tell me what the story was over the radio. So I figure, you know, an Arab with a gun at the checkpoint, that's serious. So we hit the gas, and we got there. We get there, there's a guy. He's sitting there, he's having a cup of coffee. He's Arab, clearly. He's holding a gun on his lap. <laughs> Turned out, he was what's called a mashtap. A mashtap is a mishatef pula. This is somebody who cooperated with the Israeli armed forces, right? You know, you, you know, they target this place or that place. You know, they're hitting the Hamas arms depot. How do you think the Israeli army knows what these things are? Because they pay money or other ways that they have their means to get this. And people help them and say this is here, and it's worth their while to do that. Now, sometimes people start to realize who these mashtapim are. But... You know, before we gave away sort of Gush Katif and Gaza Strip and took all the 8,000 Jews who were living there out of there and back in 2005, that's a whole other discussion, right? Before the first Intifada. So, you know, before the Palestinian Authority, before Oslo. So, you know, the Israeli army was there. But now we had pulled out of these areas. So what do you do with a guy who's been helping the Israeli army for 10 or 15 years, has given a lot of valuable intelligence? Well, if you pull out of there and you just leave him there, they're going to shecht him the next morning. So apparently, they took like 30 or 40 of these families that had done a lot of good work, and they pulled them out. What do you do with them? They've still been living in Aza. You know, some of them did it for money, so their security credentials are question, questionable. So they built them a village. They built them a village in the middle of nowhere because it was safer to have them there, both because they wouldn't be a danger to anybody else, and more importantly, because it was much easier to make sure that nobody approached them. Well, this guy showed up at the checkpoint that night because he had, he had freaked out. He freaked out. People had come by. People were driving in the area. He was sure that they knew. He was terrified they had found him out, whatever it might be. And, you know, we were on the edge of Rafiach. He didn't know what to do. So this was way above my pay grade. And um, I passed it on up, and they passed it on up. And whatever they did, they took care of him. Eventually, a jeep came to take him and to sit with him and figure out what was going on. Right? I didn't hear about it. I just, it was one of those weird stories that when you get home, you tell your wife about and you're not sure what just happened. And I would have probably forgotten about it. Except that two, morning late, two mornings later, I was on patrol and uh, we were called urgently to the scene of a fire that they had seen by the side of the road. By the time we got there, it was too late. There was a five-year-old girl. She was an Arab girl. It turned out that she was the daughter of this guy. They had found her, they had caught her, they tied her up inside a tire, and they set it on fire. I live with that image in my head ever since then. This guy was destroyed. I never saw him again. I never followed up on the story, it wasn't my, but it stayed with me for a long time. How do we relate to the cultures that are different from us, right? Now, 
there were people within this particular group of people that were actually former terrorists. But they realized that the plate had turned over and they decided to kind of get with the winning side. How do you deal with that? We're surrounded by cultures that are different from us. How do we deal with them? Now, why do we bring this up, this week's parasha, Kitete? Because one of the most famous parashiot in the entire Torah is in this parasha. Again, sorry. Thank you. Right? One of the most famous parashiot in the entire Torah is in this week's parasha. Okay? Um, anybody know what I'm talking about? By the way, it's interesting because whenever you go to synagogue, whenever you go to Shul, and the Rav gets up to give a drasha, he usually starts with the beginning. Right? You know, if you go and you see a woman and you want to capture her, and we'll talk about that over Shabbos. And the laws of how to deal with a religious war. And because of that, we very often don't get to the end of the Parsha. But this week, I want to talk for a few minutes about the end of the Parsha. What happens at the end of the Parsha? It's an unbelievable halacha. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody? End of the Parsha? There is, by the way, a beautiful custom of Shnai Mikra Vecha Targum and Talacha that you're supposed to try to go through the whole portion every week with at least one commentary, right? Because we read the Torah on Shabbat morning. If you follow along, think, ask questions, whatever, we'll talk about that on Shabbos, then that's one of your mikra, that's one way to do it. So that means that every week, you just got to study, go through the parsha, and read a translation. You can be yotzit, it's mitzvah, by the way, by reading the verses and their corresponding English. You can decide to go through Rashi, you can read a commentary, whatever it might be. So if you went through Shnai Mikra, you would probably have gotten to this. And if not, you know, you have uh, some say, tell Simchas Torah to catch up, but okay. Right? So what am I talking about here? Anybody? Really? I'll give you a hint. It's a mitzvah. Who said that? Okay, what's your name? Remind me? Pardon? Judah what? Judah Berman. Okay, Judah Berman. You are correct. This is the mitzvah of Zachor et Asher Asalcha Amalek. Mechiat Amalek. Okay, you have to wipe out Amalek. By the way, just as an aside, you may know that this is one of the six zechirot. This is one of the six things that we're obligated to remember. Okay? People don't usually know the other ones, and I'm not going to do that right now. You can look it up in your sitter. It's usually in the art school. I think it's at the end of Shachris. I could be wrong. Right? Remember what Miriam did. Remember the Be'er, whatever it might be. This is a mitzvah. Now, when did we fulfill this mitzvah? When did we, fulfill, when did we read this portion and remember Amalek? Right before Purim. It's called Shabbat Zachor. Right? And by the time we get to Shabbat Zachor, you guys are going to be so in the zone. Right? You're going to be makbit, should I say it in two different nusachs or whatever, right? Okay? Now, because of Corona, it is highly likely that a lot of people missed the mitzvah of Shabbat Zachor this year, right? Because maybe you weren't even in Shul. So I want to tell you something. The easiest way to make up that mitzvah is this Shabbos. If you have in mind, when we read Zachor, okay, to fulfill the mitzvah, you're covered. In fact, if you know you're going to do that, you don't have to do it on Shabbat Zachor. That's a whole interesting discussion, but we're not going to go there right now. So that's just as an aside. You can fulfill a mitzvah that you missed, right? This Shabbos, pretty easy. Um, but let me ask you a question. Listen to this Pasuk. One second. Remember what Amalek did to you. Okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry, we'll get it later. Remember what Amalek did to you. Okay? On the road, when you left Egypt. They cooled you off on the road. Not for now, but a good discussion for Shabbos. 
Now, zanav is the tail. They tailed you. Let me ask you a question. What's the difference between someone who attacks you head on and someone who attacks you from behind? Yeah? Loud. Sure. Is it Nitai? Yes. Okay. Right. Right. Who's in the back? Pardon? Maybe it's a good strategy. Okay, could be. Let's think about this for a minute, okay? If you attack somebody from the back, you know, we all know this because we've seen the movies, right? The real man comes up and faces you like a man, right? You know the famous gunfighter scenes where you got your hand on the gun? What does a coward do? He hides behind and he shoots you in the back. Maybe a good strategy, right? But brave people don't do that. At least that's the perception we have. Who's in the back? I'll tell you an interesting thing. In the Israeli army, right? My son, just reason my son is in the paratroopers. He recently became a Samach Mempe. Samach Mempe is a deputy company commander. It's sort of a step up from being just a platoon commander. Right? There are three platoons in a company. Each platoon is commanded by an officer. If you finish officer's course and you're in a battle-worthy unit and you do well enough, they give you command of a fighting unit. And if you do really well, eventually you, become a, you, you get to the level of a company. One of the interesting challenges I remember when I became a deputy company commander, the deputy company commander's place in the column is in the rear. And it's based on a mullik. Because the two most battle-worthy, seasoned, knowledgeable, experienced are the two commanders of the company. In fact, the deputy company commander, who doesn't have ex- as much experience as the company commander, he basically takes the place of the company commander if something happens. And unfortunately, that happens. And when you become a deputy company commander, and I remember this, it's like overwhelming that all of a sudden you could be responsible for a whole company. Why do they put him in the back? Because very easily in combat, the enemy can attack from the rear. Or you suddenly have to turn around, you're in the mountains, you're on a mountain road, and you have to get out, and that means the guy in the back is now in the front. You never let a sergeant be in the back. In fact, one day I'll tell you the story of Zach Baumel and how he and Svi Feldman and Yehuda Katz were... This, uh, sorry, well, it doesn't matter for now. Were taken captive, um, possibly because they were the last tank in the column. They had no business being the last tank in the column. They were commanded by a sergeant. So a Malik attacks us in the rear. Usually the women, the children, the weak are in the rear. Pardon? No, no, I'm good. Right? Okay? So, thank you. Right? So, this is interesting. So, we have Allah. What they did was just a terrible thing. They attacked all the weak in the rear. And you were so tired. Right? They didn't fear God. So, when you get to Israel, you conquer the land, you're done with all your enemies. Right? That Hashem has given you as an inheritance. Then you will have a chance, you have a mitzvah, to wipe out the memory of Amalek. From beneath the sky. Wipe them out. Don't forget. Again, let's put aside the question of remember what Amalek did and then wipe them out, but then don't forget. It's an interesting question. But clearly, right, there are two aspects of this mitzvah. One is supposed to remember what Amalek did, but the other is supposed to wipe them out. So let's talk about that for a minute. You are supposed to wipe them out. Okay? Just to be clear, so we're not being politically correct here, listen to Rashi. Okay? Every man and every woman. 
every child, every nursing mother, every animal, the ox, the cattle, everything. The name of Malik should not be remembered. There should be no remnant of them. Wipe them out completely. Right? Ask me a question. Ask me a question. Yes. What's your name? Daniel? Okay. Wait, 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 we're going to do this right. Stand up. I am... I'm Daniel Bird. Okay. Uh, I feel like in Judaism we believe that everyone has chance to Judah and like not everyone uh, has. So uh, what about Shuva? Why are we wiping them out? Yeah, what else? What's your name? I am... Yes. Ah! Ah! What a terrible thing! You gotta like they killed our women and children. We're gonna go kill their women and children. What's the point? Like that's a terrible thing. Yes. Remind me your name. Jonah Hoffman. Jonah Hoffman. for for Mariv, right? First Mariv of uh, first air shots. Mariv. Yeah. Did a good job. Speak up. Remembering them, remembering, I guess, from what they did for the it's similar to how we should, like, go out of the large example here, pretty far, but, like, Nazis, like, you should go every Nazi, but you also have to remember what the Nazis did. So let me ask you a question. Don't answer this. You could say it. Let me ask you a question, all right? So we've got to kill them all, right? Okay, so you're in World War II. You land at Normandy. You fight your way all the way up to Berlin, right? You're part of taking the Reichstag, which means your name is Ivan, right? And there's a little three-year-old, and the little three, two-year-old, and he's dressed up in a Nazi uniform because he was Hitler's pet. He's two years old. And you're going to destroy Nazism, so you pick him up and you throw him off the roof of the Reichstag. You feel good about that? Like, this is an obvious question, right? So, so your commanding officer says to you, Vastutzach! which would be impressive in the U.S. Army, but okay, right? And you say, I don't understand, what's the Shiloh here? It's a mitzvah. It's in the minyan of mitzvahs. Now let's just compound this question, okay? The Rambam, how could you have a shear without the Rambam? Rambam! Okay? The Rambam says like this, this is Hilchos Malachim. By the way, Hilchos Malachim is the most amazing set of halachas you will ever learn in your life. It's unbelievable. It's the last set of halachot in the entire Rambam. And it's basically, among other things, what's going to happen one day? How is it going to look when we get to Mashiach? Which is an amazing thing to have in a book of Halacha. Like, who's the Mashiach going to be? What's he going to do? What's it going to look like? It's actually most amazing to me personally because there are big debates about this. So far, my money's on the Rambam. Everything the Rambam has said has happened so far. So it seems to be the process he's describing is closest to what's going on, which makes this very cool reading, but we're not going to go there right now. So the Rambam gets to this question, right? It's in Perak Vav and Hilchos Malachim, Allah Dalit, okay? Right? Listen to what the Rambam says. The Rambam says, Aval Shima Amamin Ve'amalek, regarding sort of the seven Canaanite nations, you know, the Chivites, the Yivusites, whatever, right? Okay, there were seven nations, the Chiti, the Girgashi, right, etc. They all 
had to be, says the Ramam, just like Amalek, Shaloi Shlimu, the ones who didn't make peace. Ain Menichin Mehem Neshama. You can't leave anybody left. Shenemar came to sell a call any basis on a person. Fachainu Omer Bamalek, Timchet Zecher Amalek. Uminayin Shenomadabe, and the Ramam seems to say, Uminayin Shalomadabe, um, sorry, lost the place here. Um, there were the Givonites. I should actually take a pause here. Uh, according to the Gemara, when Yeshua enters the land of Israel, Hashem says to him, there are seven nations, and you're going to go to war. Okay. There's an obvious question here. Right? People are living in their land, and we're going to come in and conquer the land. We're the colonialist conquerorist and we're destroying the people. Sounds familiar from the newspapers, right? Okay. So this is true. I mean, that's what Yeshua did. So the Gemara, thank you. The Gemara says you have to give them three choices. Yeshua gives them three choices. Choice number one, you can run. If, if you want to leave, you can leave. We won't destroy you if you leave. Okay? And the Gemara actually says, interestingly, that one of the seven nations actually did this. Anybody know what they were called? The Girgashi. Who said that? Somebody say that? Stark. Right? Shapiro Starkness has surfaced. Okay. Right? The Girgashites. Right? They left. According to the Gemara, they went to a place. Does anybody know where they went? According to the Gemara? No? They went to Afriki. That's what the Gemara says. Okay? Afriki place. Interestingly enough, there was a, an obelisk that was discovered in Namibia by two traveling French archaeologists. It was only translated when they discovered the Rosetta Stone. I'm not going to explain all this because that'll take us out of our shear. But again, we're going to do a Q&A soon. You can ask me more about this. Um, and they translated it. Right? The Rosetta Stone is an amazing piece of discovery, but again, for another time, they were able to translate this obelisk. And they found part of the text said, you ready for this? By the way, my relationship with Judaism, with Hashem, with Amuna is not based on these tidbits. But they're interesting, right? It says on that obelisk, in Africa, Namibia, we are they that fled before Joshua, the son of Nawe. Anyway, whatever. So there was one nation apparently that fled. Then there was another nation, which the Rambam quotes here, and this represented the second choice. The second choice that was given okay, to these nations was you could make peace. Yeshlimu, make shalom. You have to offer them the chance to make shalom. Right? There was a group of people that did do that. They were called the Givonim. How they did it, they did it by subterfuge. That's the subject of one of the procurements for Yeshua. We're not going to get into that right now. And therefore, they were allowed to remain. They lived in whatever fashion that they lived. If they wouldn't run and they wouldn't make peace... By the way, what does it mean to make peace? Okay, pardon? Nope, not true. Evid Kanan is not a slave. That's a whole other discussion. Nope, what does it mean to make peace? They have to accept the Sheva Mitzvah Peninach. If a guy says, I want to stay, I want to make peace with you, but listen, you know, we got this great idol stuff going on. It's a lot of fun. We take women, we have our way with them, and then we butcher them. Now, if the Jewish people are coming to create an ethical society, to be a role model for what a society can look like, you can't create an ethical world if you're living next door to a murderer. Right? If somebody refuses to give up sort of stealing, because stealing is a lot of fun and it's an easy way to make money, you can't create an ethical society. You can't create a model world for the world to see if people are still stealing. 
I'm oversimplifying a complex issue. So therefore, if they're not willing to accept the Shev Mitzvah Noach, and you want to create an ethical society, right? Imagine that somebody here, you know, comes to Yeshiva. And we say, okay, look, you have three choices. You don't like the rules here. <coughs> you can leave. I'm not looking to make somebody be Shomer Shabbos. So if you don't like that, Yishtabach Shamo, you know, you can go up to the Golan or hang out in the Weba Beach in Egypt with all the partiers, right? If you want to be here, then you got to accept the seven minutes in the Noach, which means, you know, I don't know, no cell phones on Shabbos, you got to start liking Cholent, whatever it might be. Okay, right? If you don't want to do either of those things, then it gets ugly, right? That's exactly what Yeshua tells them. Now, what's interesting about this, by the way, really fascinating, is there's a debate here, which we're not going to get into, Rashi, the Rambam, the Ravid, about whether this applies to a Malik. Okay? The Rama seems to say it does or it doesn't. Well, you know what? I'm not going to get into it. There's one day that says that you can't make peace with a Malik. A Malik is a separate story. You have to wipe them out. There's another day that says, no, you can actually offer peace to a Malik, and if a Malik will make peace to you, they're no longer a Malik, you can make peace with them. So that's a whole interesting discussion. Let's say, though, that our story still stands, our question still stands, according to the day that says that you cannot offer peace to a Malik. That becomes a really difficult question. I want you to know something. Of all the things that you have to go through in the army, I think this is the most difficult one. Right? You know? You're on a patrol, and someone jumps out from behind an alleyway. He's holding an RPG. RPG is a rocket-propelled grenade. Okay? This is a longer story for another time. And you got a second. You don't even have time to give the target to your gunner and let him do his job because the amount of time it'll take you to move the turret, to bring him on site so that he can press the button to shoot whatever's in the cannon is going to take too long. The amount of time it'll take you to give an order to your loader who also has a machine gun, he's also in a turret outside the tank, you know, Ta'an, Bazooka, Mismal, Esh, right? That amount of time is too much time. Because if, if this person just aims and hits the trigger, once that RPG is launched, it will peel away the armor of the tanks that we were in, and you'll kill your crew. And maybe you'll, you'll stop a whole column of tanks, and maybe you'll, you know, that's the start of an ambush, so you have no choice. And then you realize that the person holding the RPG is a seven-year-old kid. What do you do? What do you do? Right? What do you do? You're killing... There's no way you can tell me that that seven-year-old is responsible for his actions. He was brainwashed. He thinks he's doing holy work, whatever it might be. It's your life versus his. Who says your life should be read? It's a whole interesting discussion. Right? So that I could understand. It's one of the more difficult things... Thank God most Israeli soldiers don't have to deal with it. Sometimes you do. Sometimes it's as simple as a kid throwing a rock. Okay, so there's all sorts of systems so you don't have to hurt that kid. Sometimes it's more complicated. They used to call them RPG kids. Our enemies unfortunately realize that we hesitate when we see children or women. And so they train people. And again, I'm not getting into discussion about the Middle East, although we can definitely do that in the Q&A. But that's not our question here. Our question is, you have to kill their animals. You have to kill the two-year-old. Why? By the way, Pshat Halacha. 
you find, we, we, we get a Melech, we get a Sanhedrin, we build a base of Mikdash, there's going to be a mitzvah to destroy our Malik if our Malik is left and if we can find them. That's another interesting discussion. And if that mitzvah comes, and you're in the army and there's a Melech, you're going to be obligated to do that. Could you do that? That's a difficult question. Now, let's say you say, you know what, I'm going to take this, two, I'm going to take this one-year-old, and I have my next-door neighbors, and they have no children, we'll adopt him. Right? So that's Asr Midaraisa. You can't do that. You have to destroy a Malik. Why would you have to do that? So there is one clue. Are you looking for an answer? Or you have a question. Pardon? Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Right? Got to roll with it for a minute. Right? There is one clue. Right? One of the things we do very often is we stick with our existential questions, but the Torah gives us a clue. Right? And that is in Pasuk Yudchet. The Torah tells us, okay? Right? Right, they attack you from the rear. Now, who is this talking about? Somebody is not Yarealukim. You could say this is talking about us, that we're not, we weren't God fearing. Pshat is, though, without getting into why, that it's actually talking about Amalek. You could debate that, by the way. If it's Amalek, well, so that's. That's a clue as to what's really going on here. Now, what does it mean that they were not Yerei Elohim? And here comes another question. So, why Amalek? If a lot of this issue is that Amalek was not God-fearing, well, what, the Mitzrim were God-fearing? The Plishtim were God-fearing? The Moabites? The Ammonites? Like, there's a whole crew of people who were, obviously, weren't afraid of, or weren't in awe of Hashem enough. So we need to understand what Yerei Elohim is. And we find this in a variety of places, right? The best example I can think of is the story of Avram, right? When Avram Avinu, let's see if we can find this. Um, when, remember that weird story when Avram goes down to Mitzrayim and there's a famine, right? God just tells him to get to Israel, there's a famine, he goes down, that's a whole interesting discussion. Should he have gone down? And on the way down, he suddenly realizes his wife's a fox, right? Sarah is, uh, you know, quite the beautiful woman. So he comes up with a plan. Tell them you're my sister. Remember this story? This is one of the oddest stories in the Torah. When we get to that parasha, we can talk about it. Or we can talk about it over Shabbos if you want. But, um, but why does he do that? Anybody remember the story? What happens to Sarah, yeah? Because they would have told him to take his wife and that it was his wife. Because if he would have said she was his wife, right... So what happens? So of course, you know, Paro, or Paro Necho, whoever he was, the leader there, so he sees this gorgeous woman. So he takes her to his palace. And then Hashem comes to visit, and there's a whole story, I'm going to bring a plague or whatever, and he gets very angry at Avram, because he says to Avram, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? I thought she was your sister. Right? He has a legitimate complaint. Like, okay, you could marry a single woman, you could take her, he's the king, maybe he has certain rights, but not if she's someone's wife. So Avram, in responding, What would you, would you do this to me? Says Avram, There is no Yirat Elohim. Same phrase. Right? And because of my wife, because she's so beautiful, they would have killed me. Now the Sfarno says, Elohim here, Sfarno was an Italian commentator, uh, 1300s. The Sfarno says, that we're talking about judges. There's no law here. This is an, an evil, immoral society. This is Germany in 1936. 
when all the judges are swearing fealty to Hitler. But many of the Mepharshim say, no, we're not talking about judges. There's no Yirat Shamayim here. So Yirat Elohim, now let's understand what is Yirat Elohim, and then we'll be able to answer this question, and I'll give you some food for thought, and then we'll open up the floor to discussion, and we'll get ready to have some children, right? To, to do a little Chadech Hoshech, whatever, right? So what is Yirat Elohim? What does that mean, right? This morning in Hilchos Tshuva, okay, you remember that I said to you that the Rambam in his Koteret, when the Rambam talks about the mitzvah to do tshuva, what does the Rambam say? He says, right, that there's mitzvah kshayashuv bechetao, when a person does tshuva, right, lidvadot lifnei Hashem, or kshayashuv lifnei Hashem. Tshuva has to be before Hashem. And I asked you, what does it mean it's before Hashem? What is Yirat Shemai? What is Yirat Hashem? So, Yirah is very often interpreted to mean fear. But, that doesn't make sense to me. First of all, it doesn't make sense to me because when you really understand what fear is, why would I want that experience with Hashem? Right? We'll talk about that sometime too. Right? On a deeper level, who would want to have a relationship with Hashem that's full of fear? Right? I want to have a relationship with Hashem that's full of love. So one way of understanding this, Rav Shimshon Fahl Hirsch says that roots of a word when they're similar letters are related to each other, is that Yirah is related to the root Ra'ah. Even though the, word, the root of Yirah is Yareh, it relates to Ri'iyah. Yirat Hashem is not that you're afraid of God, not afraid of being punished, it's you're in awe of Hashem. You see Hashem everywhere. You're so in awe of the presence of Hashem that it overwhelms you. That's Yirat Hashem. And I promise you, that you will have a moment like that this year. I can't tell you when it'll be. It might be on the roof during the Elah, when we're jamming as the sun sets. It might be, you know, on a teal in the Golan, in Emekabacha, I don't know, right? It might be in Sfat, that's pretty high, right? But you'll have a moment like that. It's overwhelming, you know? You're standing at your chuppah, and your wife is walking down the aisle, and you're just in the presence of something amazing. You're standing in a room and it's the two of you. And the next moment she gives birth and there's three of you. And you meet this human being who's going to be your child. And it blows your mind. You're at Elohim. To achieve that is to be in awe. It's, it's to see a sunrise and understand that Hashem has given me a new day. It's to take a pause. Uh, two years ago, I remember... You could try this. Um, came Arab Shabbos two years ago. I think it was two years ago, and uh, it was the first year we were here. We were sitting in the in the in the corner over there. I came for you know mincha. It was a minute early, and there was a, one of the boys was standing outside, right? And he looked like he was shuckling, you know, like back and forth. So I, I thought maybe he's davening mincha, and and when daven mincha, we're going to mincha together. So I go outside, and I see his like his eyes are moist. So I kind of stepped away. It was you know was having a moment. And later on the course of Shabbos, I spoke to him. You know, it's interesting. There are a lot of different kinds of students who come here. And um, some guys, you know, they've been to Israel 10 times, 15 times. They can navigate around the old city. They know the way down, sorry, they know the way down to the Kotel. You're doing a very good job. They, 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 they walk down to the Kotel, you know. Some guys never been to Israel. Some guys here, they can take a part of Daf Kamara. Some guys can barely read Hebrew, right? Somebody once asked me, why do you need all these different students? Because everybody brings something to the table. You know what the kid, and I, I hope I'm not offending anybody here by pointing this out, I just 
this is just my perception. You know what a boy who doesn't have as much Jewish background, maybe went to public school, you know what he brings to the table? He brings to the table that when he walks down to the Kotel, when he's sitting and learning a piece of Gemara, a piece of Talmud, he really appreciates it. That's a gift. When I was 18 years old and I came to Gush, I didn't appreciate it. I'd been to the Kotel a whole bunch of times, right? I'd studied Gemara. I was in a base marriage program the year before, right? And the Shiva I was in, there wasn't anybody who didn't have background. It took a long time for me to meet somebody who was blown away. You know, years later at an NCSY, something or other, or whatever it was. Everybody brings a different piece to the table. If you can have a moment of pure Yirat Hashem, yours is the earth. Ein Yirat Elokim Bamakom Says Avram Avinu, there is no... Now, what does that have to do with this? Because what does it mean to be a moral person? Let me ask you a question, which we're not really going to answer now. And we're about to finish. What does it mean to be a moral person? I'm going to suggest something, which we'll get to talk about over the year. If God doesn't exist, then there is no objective morality. What makes something right or wrong? So, if Hashem runs the world, and Hashem created the world, then Hashem decides what's right and what's wrong. By the way, just to be clear, this does not prove the existence of Hashem. Maybe we made up Hashem to solve this problem. But if Hashem doesn't exist, then what makes something right or wrong? The only thing that makes it right or wrong is that I think it's right or wrong. Some people will say, how do I define what's right and what's wrong? Society gets together, there's a social contract. And we as a society decide that what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. What if society's wrong? What if a society gets together and decides that what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right? Right? If you're part of the Taliban and you're in Afghanistan today, then if a woman sort of is walking around without her head covered and she's driving a car, they'll shoot you. And that's right. In their stratosphere, that's actually moral. I don't know. Right? If you're a Nazi, right? so then it's right to murder Jews because the world becomes better. How do you decide what's right and what's wrong? I'm not even going into the world of fake news, which we've all been struggling the last few years. So, in Yerat Elohim means the minute that Hashem isn't part of the equation, there is no objective right or wrong. Right? If you read atheist philosophy, right? Sartre, okay? Atheist philosophers will admit that they have two or three basic problems with the idea of there being no deity, no source, right? How did we get here? What are we doing here? And one of them is, is there an objective moral compass? So, Ein Yirat Elohim means that Hashem doesn't really run the world. That idea is the single most dangerous idea at the root of all the other dangerous ideas in the world. Right? And I'll finish off by saying, can a society reach a level of evil which is so powerful and so dangerous that the world is better off without that society. Now let's be clear. Human beings cannot make that decision. You are not, uh, except for one very weird Truma Sadeshan that I heard from Rav Tabori, but actually I've never been able to find. Every other commentary, you are not allowed to destroy a Malik without a Melech, without a Sanhedrin, without Nevuah, without a base of Mikdash. Only Hashem can decide that. You can't decide, I don't know, Hamas Nikim or a Malik, right? If we conquer Hamas absolutely forbidden on so many different levels to kill Hamas children. Right? Okay. person has to act in order to... So that's a whole other discussion. But if Hashem decides that a society is so evil, right? If somebody would have come along and said, I'm a Navi. 
and actually would have been a Navi. And he would have come over to, I don't know, Gelb, right? Jake Gelb? No? What's your name? No, not you. What's your name? Yeah. Mark Adler. Okay, we're going to get this. We're going to get this. So Mark Adler. If a Navi would have come over to Mark Adler and would have said, right, you need to kill that three-year-old. There's no way you'd be able to do that. But what if that three-year-old was Adolf Hitler, right? Well, then maybe you'd be able to. It's powerful that the Torah says, even as a theoretical, that a society can reach such a level of evil that the world is better off without it. That evil needs to be destroyed. By the way, what is the ultimate example of that in the Torah? Pardon? Stonvamar is a good example. What's even better? The whole world. The whole world reach a level of violence of evil that means we're better off without that world. If the purpose of the world is, is to bring Hashem into the world, if the world is distancing from Hashem, there's no point to having the world. And that's what is alluded to in Kitetzi. Isn't it interesting that we always read this parasha at the beginning of Elul? As we enter the world of Rosh Hashanah, and we're going to get into this year, and you're going to hear lots of things like, we should respect everyone, and we have to hear everybody's perspective, and you can't disagree with someone until you respect where they're coming from. It's not out of tune to recognize that there can be an evil which is so great that the world is better off without it. When we arrive at that, and that's a different question. But as a theoretical, it's something to think about. So let's pause here, okay? Here's what we're going to do. We'll take um, a couple of questions, and then we're going to have some fun. Yes? Um, there were Remind examples. me again, I apologize. Alicia? Oh, Alicia, yeah. yeah. Uh, there were three examples given of societies that, that were so evil that they need to be wiped out, Sodoma and then the whole world by, uh, by the model. But the, the thing you notice... By the way, the, by the way, just to be clear, the whole society was not destroyed in the model because Noah survived. No, uh, yeah, no, okay. Those firecrackers, don't worry. What? Is that God did it himself? Hashem did it himself. That's right. Well, I mean, uh, you asked if a navi came to Mark and said, "Oh, that's an excellent question." I would say, "God, do it yourself." Why and what value is there to the fact that if Hashem decides evil needs to be destroyed, Hashem wants me to do it? Excellent question. You would have to say that part of the development of a better world is our ability not just to do good, but to destroy evil. Uh, Now, if you're curious, if you're curious, we're going to have two opportunities over the next couple of days, do some serious Q&A, and tonight is one of them. Ask me that question. Excellent question. Let's take another one, yeah? If it's a mitzvah to wipe out the memory of Uncle Amalek, why do we try so hard to remember? Is it a mitzvah to wipe out the memory of Amalek? That is another interesting question. It says, Timched Zecher Amalek, the memory of Amalek, but then it says, Lotishkach, don't forget them. That's another good question. By the way, Rashi says, the reason you destroy every last animal is that nobody will say, oh, look, that's an Amalekite. Which means the memory of their existence has to be gone, but not the memory of the lesson that we take from them. Right? So, again, if you're interested, tonight, in the Tish, tomorrow night, over Shabbos, I'll give you a great idea that relates to Amalek. I just, I'm conscious of my limitations. Let's do this, okay? Take a pause, close your eyes, and remember your question. Like, try to remember your question. By the way, if you're afraid you'll forget your question, right, just WhatsApp it to me. You know, you have my WhatsApp. And tonight, when you get to the Q&A or on Chavez, whatever, I will sort of have a chance to bring it up. 
What we're going to do now is another right to tradition, okay? Um, put this aside, let me turn this off.